What scares you? For me, what each of us can do to one another is pretty scary in itself. But that's not the focus of this episode. We're looking at mythical creatures that have caused us to hear noises at night, growing up, and even as adults. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Vampires. Nosferatu like the original silent film up to Bela Lugosi. They have been reimagined many times, but still need one thing to survive. Blood. Gotta mention Christopher Lee in there, too. But who can protect us against these blood-sucking creeps? Joss Whedon had an answer with Slayers, and one in particular named Buffy. Ernest Lilly and I spoke to him back in 1997, when Buffy made her first kill on the air. But these vampires keep coming up and sort of ruining, uh, you know, ruining her chance to be popular. Absolutely, not just vampires. She has to deal with every kind of monster she possibly could, witches, werewolves, zombies, all of that stuff. Well, there's like, I, I guess the theory behind the show, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that certain people, uh, no matter where they go in life, seem to have things that follow them around, or their destiny is just much stronger than whatever they want to do in their own lives, such as the case with Buffy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. She'd love to be normal and go on dates and do her homework and just be a kid, but she has this destiny she has to face it she has no choice we like the idea that Buffy's not just for vampires anymore uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what sort of beasties are we going to see on the show well we, we will be featuring a witch next next week great um, uh, let's see there's a giant praying mantis there's um, some kids possessed by um, hyenas there's a um, demon trapped in uh, the internet there's you know pretty much anything we can come up with uh, any visits by FBI agents <laughs> well, actually, there is one at, at one point, but no, we're not stressing that. We're, we're trying to stay away from that to an extent. Well, it's good to see uh, people like Anthony Stewart Head, who was who was one of our favorite series, uh-huh. VR Five, which didn't get its due. We felt, and we hope that uh, this will be a you know a better gig for him. And it's also a nice young cast around her too. They're great. They're wonderful actors, and they're very sweet. They're great people, and they just they can do all the comedy and all the horror, and, and I'm really lucky with them. And with Tony. Mm-hmm. Tony Head is just, he's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's a great center to move around. Speaking of yeah. sweet, did you, uh, did you consciously go for a sweeter Buffy this time? She's a little less buff. Well, she's, um, you know, you wanted to stress the vulnerability, and mm-hmm. I think uh, she came off a little harsh. She was sort of ignorant in, in the movie, and I think, you know, we wanted to pull back from that. This is somebody who's already been a slayer. You know, she's she's wake, she's woken up to the world. She's experienced it, and it's, it's pushed her around a lot, so she has that vulnerability. And Sarah conveys that really well. You know, you want to make her an underdog because um, she is stronger than everybody around her. She is, you know, faster and smarter, and so... You know, you need to have that, that sympathy, that thing you can relate to, which is that everybody kind of puts on her. More sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. But not all vampires are inherently bad. Buffy had a tortured one in Spike. Here's James Marsters. It's about growing up and about not losing hope as you grow up and realize the world is, is a pretty messed up place. And uh, we've had those kind of stories for guys for a long time. Now. Oh, yeah. 
you know, we had Catcher in the Rye, we had Hamlet, we had all of this stuff. And for girls, it's a lot, I don't know. It was, I, I don't remember something so clear for girls. Not on the math level, anyway. The, his, uh, his lines were just incredible. I mean, he had some of the best lines on the show, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would read the script just going, oh, yeah, I can't believe they gave that to me. And, and what's the secret of doing the English accent as an American? Um, speed. <laughs> like with most with most accents, it's mo- to really sell it. Of course, you got to get all the sound differences down, but you also have to understand the rhythm of the language. English people like to speak very very quickly. They also use that, and they'll go very slowly for emphasis. But they will rattle off ideas; they'll just tumble off their tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and believe me, when they do American accents, like. Okay, I'm an American. <laughs> like to us, we speak like turtles. So for me, it was really mostly about getting my lines down twice or three times as well as, as anyone else had to. Mm-hmm. Everyone else could go, uh, well, you know what I mean, uh, like that. And I, I don't hear English people pause like that. They just go straight through. Now. Did you talk that way, off, you know, off t- when you were off camera, or did you were you able to switch in on and off? Oh yeah, pretty much switching on and off. That's one time I pretended to be English in a mall for an afternoon. And I got invited to three parties. <laughs> that was in Toronto. Yeah, I was like, man, English—they do have more fun. <laughs> I'll tell you, you, you did it so well. It was really hard to pick 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 that accent apart. It was like, you know, it was actually that was a neat thing about uh, Buffy and Angel. They were. Literally, two actors that were doing that were American doing English accents and really doing a great job, mm-hmm. you know. And Alexis too. So. Oh, Alexis is so good. Yeah, yeah, but he had a leg up, man. He he lived in England for a while. Oh, there but you yeah, go. He, he, no, don't take anything from Alexis. He kicks it. He kicks <laughs> it so good. <laughs> yeah. Vampires even invaded daytime back in the 1960s. Dark shadows had Catherine Lee Scott as the object of affection and desire from one vampire, Barnabas Collins. And I was the ingenue, she was the witch, and I was the bride of uh, the vampire, and, and of course she was uh, uh, separate from the unrequited love of, of Barnabas Collins. So when people see us sitting and uh, having lunch in a restaurant, I can't tell you the number of people who walk by the table, recognize both of us, and do a double take. They can't believe Josette and Angelique are actually dining together. And we are best of friends. I mean, we see each other all the time, and our husbands are good friends, and, and uh, we're, we just have a great time. And Angelique was a vampire and then a witch, played by Lara Park. The stories are based on the classics. A lot of the classics were rewritten in the Dark Shadows for the Dark Shadows characters. Turn of the Screw, Jane Eyre, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Picture of Dorian Gray, Jackala, um, Frankenstein, Werewolf. All of these stories were told originally by Gothic classic gothic writers, Robert Louis Stevenson, Henry James, and even Shakespeare. And they were deeply moral stories about universal themes of jealousy and and not just witchcraft and horror, but also deep themes of love and and, and, uh, rejection and uh, infidelity and desperate need and longing. The name Van Helsing is always known as the nemesis of Dracula, and in the TV series by the same name, his descendant, played by Kelly Overton, 
took it a step further as her blood could cure vampires. So I remember talking to Trisha Halfer, and she said that there was a climatic scene between the two of you, uh, and, yes. and, she, and she gave you props. You were five months pregnant when you shot that scene. Yes, yes awesome. I was. Now, <laughs> Thank you. The dynamic between the two of you and the chemistry was so prominent, and it was cool to see two strong women kind of going at it. What was it like on, on your end? Oh, it was so fun. So that scene was actually the first scene oh, in in the story. Um, it's the first time Vanessa meets the Dark One. And yeah. um, it was the first time that I actually, that was the first day that I was really meeting and working with Trisha. So um, it was really, um, really cool. And uh, I mean, it's amazing when that happens as an artist because, it brings, you know, um, so much energy, fresh energy to what you're doing. Oh, it was so great, you know, that the story had been leading up to that and to finally be working with Dracula and the fact that they had cast a woman to play Dracula. Um, it was so cool. She just looked so terrifying and exquisite. At the same time, it was just so fun to work with her. But we just jumped right into it. You know, it was just like, here we go. You know, I'm five months pregnant. I'm impaled on this cross. Welcome to the show. Um, now I'm going to, you know, hurl you into a vortex. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty intense, like Van Helsing likes to do. Um, oh, yeah. But also really funny. Like we, um, you know, it just ended up being so, you know, sensual at times. And um, mm -hmm. we, you know, we we just played and had fun. And she was such a, you know, a champ and trooper. And um, we just enjoyed it. You know, we laughed like, what is this? And, you know, we just had a really good time. She was She was so fun to work with. Can vampires venture into daylight? In the Twilight series, they could, with a shimmer. Director of the first movie, Catherine Hardwick, on building the chemistry for Stephanie Roth's characters. I had the actors come to my house. That's where they did the chemistry reads. They, Rob and Kristen met like in my kitchen and did the, you know, the scene in the uh, science class. They, on my bed, they did the kissing scene. You know, I like I'm very personally involved. And then also, exactly like you say, they didn't think it was going to be that big a hit. So it was more like an indie film for me. It wasn't the giant pressure of this is the Marvel universe or whatever. It was just more like well let's hope it works you know and then Stephanie was very busy on another book and you know, they were doing a lot of other projects so I think so and I was also able to be a little more free like if, if a, a very important conversation was staged in a car in the book that's very limiting to shoot in a car I mean you've only got two angles over me to you over you to me the windshield that's very static so I took those conversations how long have you been 17 put them out in the forest used a techno crank try to help you feel how dizzy and scary it would be to ask that question to reveal that you knew he was a vampire so I opened it up now later on I think it was more like okay if it said that in the book you better have that hand over that hand but you know I got to be freer what was the casting process like oh it was so fun and I had 
made the movie Lords of Dogtown, right? And I got to show it to Sean Penn, and he watched that movie, and he said, who is this guy? Emil Hirsch. Starting that, I want to cast him in my movie. So he called Emil Hirsch up, and he cast Emil. Then I went to a rough cut of Into the Wild, because he cast Emil in Into the Wild. I went to see a rough cut of Into the Wild uh, at, on the Paramount lot. I saw Kristen in that movie. So it kind of came around full circle. I saw her looking at Emil. She wanted him to kiss her. I thought, oh my God, she's really palpably longing for this person. I want her in my movie. So we kind of did that, and that's how I saw Kristen. And then the question was, who's going to be Edward? You know, this most beautiful man in the world, but he also had to look like he fit into a normal high school. So that's a very, you know, like you have Henry Cavill, the fans wanted. But he was already too old. You would never buy him in high school at that point. And so we had, uh, I picked my four top guys auditioning, and then they came all to my house, and then they met with Kristen, and we did all the different scenes, like I was saying, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, until I saw who really had that chemistry. Imagine a bar that was really a trap for unsuspecting patrons that housed a vampire queen. That was from dusk till dawn. Isa Gonzalez took on the royal blood-soaked mantle from Selma Hayek. It was, you know, obviously the comparisons were, were going to happen, and but we don't really, we weren't really thinking about that. We were honestly like thinking about going in and doing the best we could, and just giving it our own take on the characters. You know, just me. I mean, what we've said constantly. Obviously, yeah, we have the same character, the same. I'm still Santanico, the queen of the vampires. He's still Richie Gecko, one of the like. Obviously, some even some lines are like straight out of the movie. So that was logical and able to live on from these characters just also mentioning the fact that these two characters die on their movie so we have the opportunity to tell a whole other story Robert just creative mind went crazy and went broke boundaries with the director with the writers and the new directors that came on board and wanted to play with us and I think we I mean I can talk about my own experience but I feel very proud of what uh, the choices that I've made with my character I think it has its own taste and honestly like the feedback has been really positive I've seen people say that you know I love Selma but I love yours too it has nothing to do it's very different and I think it's also with every each character so I think that the passion that we have is most importantly there you know the passion that we feel for the project them as a cast them then and we here so we all love the project and who bet, who's better to do Robert Rodriguez than Robert Rodriguez himself you know what if vampires were treated like a disease Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan came up with the stream. People, hardcore fans were reading uh, George R.R. R. Martin way back, you know. I, I've been a fan of uh, his vampire novel, uh, the, the Federal Dream. I've been a fan of his short stories like Sand Kings. So, you know, there's a... I think what happens is there's every now and then the genres like science fiction and horror reflect the zeitgeist of our culture. And whenever we come to a, a time when we are worried about a certain fear as a society, it gets reflected here. We're in a millennial time right now and we're all afraid of the end of the world. So there's a resurgence of catastrophic horror and sci-fi. Uh, we are very concerned because I think that we have never felt so arrogant and so fragile at the same time. We know everybody's afraid, no one is not, uh, unafraid of hackers. 
No one really knows how they work, but we're afraid of them. Everybody's afraid of a pandemic. Nobody really knows how it works, but we're deadly afraid of it. So at the end of the day, we are medieval peasants afraid of a demon coming through the window. Except the language is more sophisticated. Viruses are boogeymen. For uh, uh, cyber terrorists are boogeymen. Terrorists are boogeymen. You know, and I think it's, it's an interesting time for them. Sci-fi talk returns in a moment. Zombies, walkers, the reanimated dead. A genre that has its roots in voodoo. But George Romero created a new approach. In comics, Robert Kirkman came along with Charlie Aldred in The Walking Dead. You get to add all these different pieces and kind of expand it into something that's bigger than what it started out being. So the television show is kind of the, the comic book expanded into the best possible version of the comic book. The main hero was Rick Grimes, and Andrew Lincoln was cast in the pivotal role. But so it is absolutely a character, uh, an exercise in character development. It, that was definitely one of the, the, the big key-ins for me. Also just to play Rick, to have time to play someone who is so flawed, so human, so so honorable, you know, driven by honorable intentions, but actually over time gets changed irrevocably. You know, it's it's a, that's the kind of dream, really. That's when you see that broken down, you go, yeah. <laughs> You can't not say, I mean, it is, but for all of, you know, I won't speak for you guys, but the, all of the characters, Frank has drawn, you know, and Robert and all the team have drawn them so brilliantly and they're so different and it's just like nothing I've ever read before. And that's, but that was one of the great excitements for me. Z Nation was the sci-fi channel's answer to The Walking Dead, but with a more fun approach. Michael Welch and Anastasia Baranova were star-crossed lovers fighting off the zombie hordes. Um, you know, it, it's so funny, man. Like people are people are so into zombies right now. They're just they're just willing to do anything. Yeah, uh, to like be a part of the culture. It's it's really cool. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that um, Carl and Craig and all these all the writers are, are really trying to do is is come up with really interesting, creative, new uh, ways of zombies like. Attacking people and and zombie. I mean, zombies in oil is just not. Yeah, you know, that's not something we've seen before. And and zombie kills and and different zombie animals and zombie babies. I mean, they're, yeah. they're really just uh, you know they're they're having fun with it. And I think that's that's the key to this show more than anything else. It's just it's just fun. So every episode we we look at this and we and we go, what is the what is the most fun thing we can do here? And then we try and execute it. Yeah, it's 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 great. One thing that was interesting, though, and it was kind of a curveball right off the bat, is uh, you know having Harold Pirino's character killed off, you know, right away, and it was yeah. like, it was like, whoa, I didn't expect that. And then uh, recently at the Sci Fi Digital Press Tour, I wasn't there, but uh, you know, I had got the transcript, and uh, your showrunner Carl Schaefer said. Um, Pretty much um, everybody on the show is fair game. It doesn't mean that they start the show, they're going to finish the show. And you've actually had, a, besides Harold, you've had another death on the show already. So, uh, I mean, what's it like for you guys? Do you have to, like, every time you get a script, look and see what's going on? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. We, we knew about those two guys uh, right off the bat. But, oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but listen, I, you know, I, I think that's, part of what makes a show like this 
work. And, and, and just looking at the two deaths we've had so far, I mean, Harold was so good and so strong and, and, and clearly such a strong leader. I mean, he was described in the first script as the guy you would want to go for the apocalypse with. And that's totally <laughs> yeah. who he was. And, and you know, and, and watching it, you're kind of going, all right, well, um, these guys are just kind of along for his ride, essentially. Yeah. Um, so by killing him at the end of the first episode, it propelled all of our characters into a new positions. It created a new, di- a new dynamic. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're on this guy's mission. It, it, I mean, it totally just set the tone uh, for the whole show. So as much as I loved Harold, I, I thought that was a really smart and interesting thing to do. And it, it, it took the show in a really interesting direction right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's sort of a funny thing in general as an actor, like work stability or job security. Like that's something that you kind of don't get too attached to. And like, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, well, listen, sometimes you work and sometimes you don't. And so, you know, that's sort of the way that it goes. But there's kind of the thing like, hey, I got on a show, you know, cool. Nope, it's a zombie show. So really, you have no idea. <laughs> it's that much more unstable and secure than you thought. <laughs> You know what I always loved about Z Nation is, um, you know, like you know the other the other guys, <laughs> uh, they don't comment on the kills, but you guys kind of do, like, kind of say what the audience would say when they say, you know, when they find a zombie underneath a car wheel or something, you know, along those lines, mm-hmm. like in season one. And I, I love that about mm-hmm. the show. It 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 kind of brings the audience along with you a little more. I think. That's interesting. I'm glad that you like that. Yeah, I think, you know, our thing from the beginning has sort of been, you know, what The Walking Dead does. And I'm actually a really big fan of that show. Yeah, um, yeah. What they do, they do so well. So there wasn't, the idea was never to try to um, do another one or yeah. do like a, a knockoff of it. The idea was, hey, this is being done and this is being done well. What else can we do? that's in this world that doesn't, like, you know, everyone, pretty naturally when we came out, we're like, oh, it's just another Walking Dead. And then you watch 37 seconds of our show and go, oh, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, they actually have nothing to do. You know, it's like a completely different vibe. It's a completely different look. Like, they really have nothing to do with one another. But I think they go together really well. And part of what we can do is not take ourselves seriously. There's more vampires, werewolves, and zombies. Oh my, so stay tuned. (laughs) Back at a look at these creatures of the night, and some during the day, too. Deadliest Warrior Vampires vs. Zombies, a case was made as to who could win. Steve Niles, who wrote 30 Days of Night on Vampires. Make a good case for the vampire. What kind of a killing machine he is compared to... Uh, they have a brain, so they can actually think and, and do things. I mean, that's the thing. Within the parameters of the of the movie, you know, within the TV show, you know, I think it worked great just with them hands and teeth. I think... I, I think... We don't know if we won. That's the thing. We'll find out when it airs. We don't know. But I feel like... How can they not? I mean, the keys are that they, they get organized fast and, that, and kill them. 
just kill off because they're not affected by the virus. So the only threat is that the zombies threaten the food supply. And that's really what it's about. So it's more of a race against time with the vampires. So I feel like that's the biggest hurdle is actually their personalities. If they can, they can win this thing easy. Yeah, I, I agree. I kind of I don't think they stand a chance because vampires can think. Um, as far as one thing I have to say is the, I love your take on vampires. None of this shiny stuff. None of that. They're brutal. They're just brutal vampires. Monsters. They're monsters. They drink blood to stay alive. I don't know how that ever became a romantic notion. You know, and just the idea that that's all they look at, you know, for us, you know, I think just makes them all the more horrifying, you know, they're us, they're us, but now they don't, you know, they don't register that anymore, they're, they're you yeah, know, so, I love vampires, great, great characters to play with. Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, which was a diary about a zombie war, talks zombies. Now, Steve Niles made a really good case for the vampires, but, we, I mean, you're the guy for zombies. What, uh, I mean, he said they're dumb. I mean, you know, come to their defense. Here. Right. They are dumb. Just like Ebola is dumb, just like AIDS is dumb, just like the Spanish influenza and the Black Death and swine flu, all dumb. How'd that work out? <laughs> uh, I think, honestly, uh, victory or defeat depends on the vampires. I think if they organize, if they set aside their differences, and if they're proactive. If they go, like any disease, the trick to, to taking out any disease is going after the source quickly, as fast as you possibly can, with all the resources at your disposal. So if the vampires do that, I, uh, there's no competition. They'll win. If they dawdle, if they delay, if they degenerate into hyperpartisan bickering, <laughs> uh, then I think we're in trouble. Because I think what, what you have to remember is vampires have physical assets, their strength, their speed. But when it comes to their hearts and their minds, they're still human beings. They're no wiser. They're no braver. They're no smarter. Uh, they haven't risen above any of the sort of social, emotional weaknesses that make us human. So if those weaknesses get in the way, it doesn't matter how fast and strong they are. Now, where do you land on, on the zombies as far as their speed? Are they slow-moving or are they quick? You know, I think it depends on how it's presented. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, say, the fast zombies in the remake of Dawn of the Dead, unbelievable, terrifying. And the fast, they weren't really zombies, but in the 28 days, weeks, months, millennial later movies, <laughs> uh, again, they're not zombies, but that was terrifying. I think how it's presented. The Michael Jackson thriller video, <laughs> not so scary. <laughs> Sorry. So do you think it's more of a, kind of with the zombies, would be more of a numbers advantage than it would, uh, like, a physical? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, with all zombie movies, it's not about their advantages. It's about the human disadvantages. You know, how many George Romero movies have we seen where you're just yelling at the screen saying, come on, you know how to beat them. You can do it. And they won't do it. And I think that what excites me about zombies and zombie stories is they expose our weaknesses. I mean, and look at the problems that we're facing today. There's nothing out there we can't handle as humans. There's not an asteroid coming. There's no alien invasion. It's all problems that are solvable. Why aren't we solving them? Yeah. So I think that's really what it comes down to. It's not the zombies' advantages. It's our disadvantages. And another thing about the uh, like the worlds where the zombies have taken over, 
it's interesting how, especially like series like The Walking Dead, how humanity is portrayed trying to survive the uh, zombie apocalypse and things like that. Well, I mean, that's the thing is all other zombie stories that I've encountered uh, are really about sort of small bands of people trying to survive. I mean, it's almost like a bunch of Katrina survivors trying to get out of the city or surviving on a rooftop. What I tried to do in World War Z, or if you're Canadian, World War Z, uh, was try to present an actual war with, with an intact government trying to reorganize itself and trying to reorganize its army and trying to feed its army and trying to feed its refugees and trying to keep law and order. I mean, there's it's so complicated, but these are the kind of issues that I'm interested in. Werewolves from the tortured souls of Lon Chaney Jr. and Henry Hull have creeped into our mythology for years. These creatures still inspire imaginations during every full moon. In the TV series Teen Wolf, the wolf pack was examined and how these creatures blended in with us human folk. Here's a creator, Jeff Davis. Uh, as we were shooting the first season, uh, actually around the pilot, I think, I had already come up with the idea of the Canima and already had season two in my head that uh, Jackson would be the main villain of season two, which is why we were so intense and so nervous. Oh, look at the dog. So nervous about him um, not coming back season two. So, but what happened between like three and four is we're just catching up now. So we plan ahead a little bit. We have an idea for season five, which we think is pretty good. So we'll see. <laughs> so the secret is how do you keep the stories and storylines so fresh? Well, we, in the writer's room, we start with, uh, we do this thing that I, I, I carried over from film school, actually. One of, the, one of the screenwriting classes, I remember, they said, when you uh, start your story, just write the five scenes you want to see. So once we get, if, if there's ever a moment where we get blocked, I stop the writers and I say, okay, what do we just want to see? What do we want to see? And one of the episodes came out, uh, one, one of the really fun episodes, I think, of uh, season two came out of, I want to see a, a werewolf fight on an ice rink. And I want to see their claws scratching across the ice. So that's what we do. We try to keep it fresh by just trying to please ourselves as audience members. But we also do a lot of research. Um, Alyssa and Angela. Alyssa is one of our best researchers on the show. And she'll come up with amazing stuff. Um, But I I have a group of writers around me who are always coming up with good ideas. Alyssa, Angela, Eric, Ian, and uh, Will, our writer's assistant, who is moving up to uh, write a script next season. Um, But uh, it's challenging. It really is. It feels like everything's always been done. Imagine turning into a werewolf on camera during a newscast. In The Howling, Dee Wallace did just that. How did you prepare to do something like that? That's something that, especially in that way, it was a very violent transformation. How did I prepare? You know, really, I don't prepare much. And it's it's a definite technique, and it's it's a fine technique to learn and to hone but um, kind of I'm I'm, Charles Conrad was my mentor and he taught us literally to go in learn the lines and channel that's what I do I just channel so I just totally commit to the part and and channel what's coming through and you know Joe said well we'll we'll put in a scream in post and I said well gosh give me a shot Let me, give me a shot at the scream right yeah and so ultimately they used my scream and just kept echoing it yeah, yeah. the Bambi werewolf at the end is an animatronic yeah that's right that's right <laughs> uh, it wasn't supposed to be in there mm-hmm. 
uh, for some reason, back then it was important to say, I will never appear as a werewolf. Uh, so Joe had to actually call an okay that with me. I was shooting Cujo at the time, and I said, just can you make my werewolf a little bit different, a little more vulnerable because she's fought so hard against this? And that's what they came up with, was this little Bambi werewolf. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's such a, a Joe statement, you know. Yeah. He, he's able to mix the comedy. He he bought all of the cartoons himself because the studio didn't want to finance him. Yeah, yeah. Which are such an important part of the film. Bitten also examined a werewolf pack, but this one had a jockeying for power and leadership. I spoke to them at New York Comic Con. I think that's one of the interesting things about the show is that we're almost as much a risk to ourselves as by any threat that's outside of us. Pack law is never lost on us. You know, the responsibilities as a pack, not just to our immediate pack, but to ourselves as a race, they are always of the utmost of importance no matter what outside influence it is. So there's this, you know, this, whatever we're dealing with always has two standards to it. And you have to remember within the pack and the family, our characters in the finale, I found out he betrayed me you know it wasn't I'm sorry it wasn't Clay it, you know he, he's the reason for me being bitten so I, I was always interested to see how that would play out in season two and how much she would hold it against him so that's trouble within the family as well Dracula once said in the Bela Lugosi film ah the creatures of the night what beautiful music they make so get your garlic your wolf bane and stakes, and don't forget to shoot for the head, as these creatures have continued to terrorize us in the past, and continue to do so as long as we want to be scared. Happy Halloween. I'm Tony Tolato.